Hello, old friends. This is Mike Dawson, and I welcome all of you to the Silent Pianist podcast, where I interview curious people that do extraordinary things. Today's guest is singer, songwriter, instrumentalist, and recording artist Paul Dadamo. He's best known as the creative force behind the album Tell Me Something, which features members of Genesis and the Phil Collins Band. He also released the album Alone in the Crowd, songs for social awareness that features the music of Lee Carreri. And Paul's upcoming third album, Rawfully Organic features members of Peter Gabriel's band King Crimson and, unbelievably, the band Yes. It'll be released sometime in the next few months. And if he's not busy enough, Paul is the owner-operator of the Cozy Ark recording studio here in North Texas. And, in fact, our conversation today took place at Paul's Cozy Ark Studios. Enjoy my interview with Paul Dadamo. These days, in, in addition to their um, ability to create these very complicated um, space missions and send them like to Pluto or they send them to Saturn like they're getting ready to crash the Cassini into uh, Saturn because they don't want to infect the moon that they think is going to be where they're, where there's the ocean, Ecladius. Right. And they're going to – they think, you know, like I was telling you about Neil deGrasse Tyson – he hopes that they're going to be able to, you know, send a satellite there, and they're going to drill through the ice, and then they're going to they're going to find uh, Dora, <laughs> you know, and the, and it's going to be looking at them, you know, it's going to like it's going to be like a, a Wally kind of moment, <laughs> and, exactly. And I think that that's just that's going to be so interesting to watch. And I don't know if if NASA is going to be the guys that are going to get to Mars. It's probably going to be Elon Musk because that's what he wants to do. I think he wants to be, you know, like a, a benevolent, uh, uh, the guy from Austin Powers, you know, the, right? You know, petting the cat and, you know, I'll get a million dollars, <laughs> and I think it's, I think he's going to be the guy to do it because he's ballsy enough to to, to do it. You know, whether he's going to be able to get the money to do it, I think is completely debatable because. You know, nation states can't afford it on their own to do it. How is he going to be able to do it? Right. And I think that's why he's able to do the things that he does now is that he's able to manipulate the system quite well. And um, uh, Robert Heinlein, you know, did a did a book many, many years ago back in the 40s or whatever it is. And the premise of the book was basically there was a guy that was the richest man in the world. But what he really wanted to do was to, you know, fly in space. And the laws at the time were, well, we can't allow you to be on the rocket because you're not healthy enough. And so he he worked really hard to get the other guys there. And then his swan song, so to speak, was that he flew and died, you know, because Heinlein knows how to 
you know, kind of right. He, right. He, he preaches a message, you know, but he also gets dark, very dark in his in his thing. So everything is working. I think we're good. I'm just what I basically do is I just create a track. Okay. And then we're just we're just hanging, man. Okay, cool. So is that fan too much of an interference? No, I don't hear it at all through the cans. Okay. So, so I all think right. I think we're all good here. So uh Paul, welcome to the silent pianist. Well, thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh helping us set up in your busy cozy arc studio, which is very cozy by the way. I'm looking around here and everybody that can't see what I'm looking at, I'm seeing a, uh, a picture of Jim Morrison, and then I look to my left and I see nothing but racks of gear, and of course there's a great re- uh, Gretsch guitar that uh, it's going to sound great. I know I'll play it someday, and we got keyboards and we got a little bear. We got oh, it's a lion. It's a lion. It's a lion. So is that is there a significance on the lion with the heart? No, there's no significance. It's just just with the lion with the heart. It's your friend. It's my friend. It's uh, your friend. One of my students had given that to me. You know, um, yeah. For uh, I think it was Christmas or something, um, and had given me the the lion. So it just just sits there on the keyboard. You know, just uh, you know, having the cozy arc. You know, I'm a big animal activist, and for people that know me, know. That I have uh, ducks and sheep and German shepherds and horses as pets and right. Is that something you've always had a love for? Is just the uh, uh, the, the the love of nature and the love of creatures in your life? You know, yes and no. I mean, growing up in New York and right outside of New York City, you know, you're you're limited because you're in a concrete jungle, so to speak. Um, so you know, I had a dog growing up and couple of cats, but, uh, you know, and as I got older into my college days, you know, you start to explore with different types of animals like ferrets and I've had, you know, those and, and where they like a friend of mine had ferrets and he was a roommate and they would always destroy my chess set. Well, you know, it, it, it was, it was tough because, you know, I didn't necessarily always keep my ferret who affectionately was named Kiri after at the time my favorite Soprano with the Met was Kiri Takano. Oh, so who wouldn't have that as a favorite? Exactly. You know. Did you get to see her perform? I got to work with her. Oh, well, in, in a master well, wait class. A minute, wait a minute. So tell so, me about that. So I I was able to, um, you know, when I was studying privately, I, I was studying privately. My first vocal teacher um, was a cantor by the name of Raymond Smolover, and he was working with a lot of. Great, great artist. He had a studio in Scarsdale, New York, which is where I grew up in Westchester County. So I would go to his home studio for my vocal lessons from the time I was probably six or seven years old. Um, And he actually got me through the voice change and introduced me to so many people who, like Edmund Carlsrud, who was a baritone and a a basso with the Metropolitan Opera. And I met Tony Randall and Donna Pescow. But one of the people that really influenced me at a very young age was that I would meet he introduced me to Richard Kiley who was known for playing Don Quixote in Man of La Mancha oh wow okay. on Broadway so Very familiar I, with that so I was able to you know spend time with Richard Kiley and and you know when he was performing go backstage and and watch him and and uh it was it was a great thing so I guess from the time I was you know 
you know, six, you know, I wanted to be a singer and I know I'm kind of going off on a diatribe because I think we were talking about animals, but, uh, basically There's not much difference between singers and animals. That's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I just I, I started and and how I got to work classically was thirteen. You know, when you're when you're a boy, you're either an alto or you know you become a tenor. And genetically, it just was I guess going to be predisposed that I became a tenor. And growing up in an Italian household and listening to big bands and Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett and everything, as I started getting older and my voice and my range had expanded into the tenor realm. I started getting influenced by, you know, Mario Lanza, Luciano Pavarotti, you know, uh, Franco Corelli. So I started having a great affinity for opera at a very, very young age. So I was able to, in my later teens, early, you know, before I hit 2021, I was able to do some work at the Juilliard School as a non-matriculated student and be able to do some um, master classes. And, you know, I guess from the time I was 16, 15, 16, I started studying with a great operatic vocal coach at Del Terzo Music Studios in Carnegie Hall. So every Saturday I had a lesson in Carnegie Hall, which was great, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And I studied with a gentleman for about five, six years by the name of Martin Lease after I left Ray Smolover. Um, and they were both, you know, you're going from a Jewish cantor who was an amazing tenor um, to, you know, somebody who had done work with so many opera companies and worked, you know. So his his start, if you call it that, was being as a cantor. For Ray Smallover, yeah. Yeah, okay. Really, absolutely. That's so intense, man. Extremely. And he was just this an amazing human being, um, just a great influence on me, just a warm, very personable, very loving um, individual. I mean, so what was the lessons like um, for you at that time um, when you're 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 kind of feeling figuring out your mature voice? You know, at that age, you know, because you've you've gone through the the transformation of your voice uh, from a young young boy into a, a young man. What was key in his coaching or training that you still remember now? Well, by the time I was I was obviously you know. Ray had kind of taken me as far as I think at that point that he could. And because I was bitten by the opera bug, I felt that that's exactly what I wanted to do. Right. Was be an opera singer. So I wanted to obviously evolve myself in to a teacher that did nothing but that. Um, with Ray, there were the, you know, the Porgy and Best standards. There were the, you know, the Sinatra standards. There were, you know, the Vic Damone all of those influences, and there was some light classical when my voice started changing. He was actually the first teacher that brought me into the realm of opera arias for tenors. Um, so what I was feeling or what I was going through was just uh, a really strict regiment of vocal exercises that had that I kept to this day. I still I still vocalize and still remember what I learned as a child, and and you know because I've only had two vocal teachers in my life. Um, sometimes that's all you need. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, and there's times where, you know, where I'm doing modern music now, it's kind of, it's, it's hard to decipher, okay, you know, when you're using your soft palate, you know, or when you're breathing, you know, how do you want to approach a note? 
Um, especially when you're doing pop music or rock music, it tends to be a little bit more, you've got to keep the classical training in the back of your head and use it as a resource, but you don't necessarily want it to be in the forefront of the recording or the performance aspect. Right, because you're, you're all of a sudden you're bel canto. Correct. Correct. And it's kind of hard to do if you're doing an R&B tune sometimes. No, I, I know that my own experience, mine was completely reversed, where my vocal training was very intuitive with just a little bit of uh, uh, choir training. But I was able to observe as a piano player, as I accompanied a lot of singers, how not to be trained as a vocalist. Because I saw something that I learned later that I saw a lot of what I what I realized was wrong education. And that's education. something, actually, I envy you because of the fact that because I was trained, because I studied, you know, you get that mindset that it's supposed to be this way. And when you're working with somebody who doesn't do it this way, um, you know, I, I wish I could use more of my intuition rather than my skill set. And I've I've started to as right. a teacher over the last fifteen twenty years. I've 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 done a lot more of being intuitive because every student that I work with is not the way that Domino's makes pizza. It's not assembly line. I mean, you're dealing with an individual. You're dealing with emotion. You're dealing with you know. I, I think sometimes as teachers, and I'm dealing with adult students as well as I'm dealing with younger students. The adult students tend to hire me not just to teach them, but I become sort of their quote-unquote therapist because if they've had a bad day at work or they're having problems at home or whatever the case may be, I wind up spending an hour, an hour and a half with them being more of getting them to calm down and try to focus on what what it is that we're doing on on the lesson. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, we talked about this earlier about artistry in teaching. So as my voice developed, I just wanted to be an opera singer. And I did that for a while, for about four years on and off as a tenor, doing some minor roles with members of New York City Opera and doing performances. And I enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. But then, um, you know, I was always a big fan from the time I was a kid, not just of Sinatra, but when I was about 12 years old, my brother came home from college and uh, brought home an album by Genesis called Abacab. And and that's one of the later records. Yeah. I mean, that was before I even developed into, even though I was also a piano student, I had no idea the whole realm of progressive rock yeah, and right. keyboard solos and, you know, several different time signatures in a song and, you know, listening to Yes or Emerson, Lake and Palmer. But he was into that. And, you know, he would come home from college and I would just raid his record collection and just start listening to everything. Right. What's your brother's name, by the way? My brother's name is John. And was he a musician or um, is a musician, I should say? He's not a, a musician. He took piano lessons and for, for years, I mean... So he he's was, a lover of music. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, for a long time, I, I heard him play the intro to the piano intro to come sail away. And that was, you know, right. I think that was his high point as a musician. I mean, you know, I would as come home from does. school and he would be sitting at the piano and I would hear, you know, the, the piano intro to Styx's um, come sail away. So, but you know, he was always a big supporter of what I wanted to do as a musician. But as, he turned you on to that music. He did. He was very much responsible for getting me into the realm of things outside of big bands, outside of, you know, the saloon singer and outside of, of classical music. And, you know, I mean, to this day, I'm sure my parents would have 
felt that he had corrupted me, but I actually think the opposite because I still have a great love for classical music. I love singing classical music. I love singing Sinatra standards um, and saloon songs, but I also love doing the Peter Gabriel, doing the Yes, doing the Genesis, and you know, and even the adult contemporary. I mean, my style of playing and singing now is probably along the lines of like a Michael McDonald, mm-hmm. you know. Right, um, right. So I mean, he's really he. My brother helped me to evolve, really. Where do you turn when you see your master plan go up in smoke? You do a real slow burn as dry your teeth and laugh until you choke. Then Murphy's Law explains the awful news If something can go wrong, it will That's how you get the Murphy Blues The Murphy Blues You had it all worked out Clockwork plan put mother time to shame If a fire broke out In the local restaurant You need the flame You felt so strong Success was in the air How could you lose? Something could go wrong, and it did. That's how you got the Murphy Blues. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The Murphy Blues, yes. Silver lining all around you. Murphy's Law don't apply to you If nothing can go wrong, you fool Murphy thinks of something new That's how you get the Murphy Blue Let's have a hand for the knowledge, the persistence, the insight, and the omnipresence of Murphy Blue So, so I wanted to to kind of even roll back the clock a little bit more, because one of the ideas that I had when I first thought I was going to do the Silent Pianist as a interview show in long form was to find out people's origins, and you're giving me a little bit of a glimpse of this by talking about uh, you know growing growing up on the island. Going into Manhattan, hanging at the Juilliard. Not the school. island. I lived in. I lived. I lived in a suburb of New York, twenty minutes out by train, thirty minutes out by car. Not on Long Island. I actually lived in a county called Westchester County. Oh, you're in Westchester. I missed. Yeah. That. Okay. So I, gotcha. I I grew up in a town 
um, that I spent a lot of my time in Harrison and Mamaroneck, New York. Okay. So. Okay. Gotcha. So, um, so tell me uh, a little bit about your mom and dad. Uh, were they musicians? Um, and uh, what's your dad's name? My father's name was James. He's no longer with us. Unfortunately, he passed away 15 years ago. Uh, my mom is Patricia. And um, my father was a, we had an organ. We had a world sort of two manual organ in the house and with the pedals and the whole nine yards. And my father loved playing and never took a music lesson in his life. But, you know, I mean, you know, from the time I was a kid, I mean, I remember some of the first songs that I've ever learned that were around the organ were Tie a Yellow Ribbon. Around the old oak tree, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. By Tony Orlando and Don, um, and I hit, think man. even around that time, my brother had this little device, this little red device, battery operated, where you can stick forty fives in. It had a handle, and it was like a portable, you know, turntable record player that would play forty fives, and he had a forty five of one side Elton John's "Benny and the Jets." Which I always thought was kind of cool. It was the live version because that's how Elton John released the single. Right, right. Um, but on the flip side was a song that was featured on the album Goodbye Yellow Brick Road called Harmony. Okay, I remember that too. And it was just one of those ballads. And that was kind of like I would be in the basement because in New York you have basements as opposed to Where we are Texas, in Texas. Right. Um, and he would have that and he would play it and he taught it to me. So he would... Bring the record player up. And, and my brother's eight years older than I am. So, you know, I'm 48 and he's 56. Um, so he would bring it upstairs and, you know, he would play it for my father and I would sing along. And I, I think at that point, when I was five, six years old, they kind of realized that there could be some sort of... Something's going on. Something's going on. Because you got ears even at five. Right, exactly. So right, I'm, right. I'm hearing melody, and I'm, you know, I'm sure there's always some sort of pitch issues, but I mean, it was it got to the point where I expressed an interest, and we didn't have a piano at the time, so the first formal lessons that I had was on the organ. Was on the organ, and I had one of those teachers that was so soft, and it's okay, and. My father, being Italian and being the youngest of six not kids, not soft and not yeah, okay. it was not like you know if we're paying for lessons, we want a teacher that's going to be you know really energized, energized for lack. That's a good word, really, because I don't think that's the word that my father would have used. <laughs> um, it was fucking energized. Yeah, yeah. So I, don't, I there you go. So I don't know exactly if I have free reign of speech here, but I mean, yeah, you um, have all the range you want. Okay, buddy. beautiful. So. Yeah, I think he wanted more of a hard ass of a teacher. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I eventually got that. I started studying at a conservatory at a young age called the Fabrio School of Music in Mount Vernon, New York. And it was owned and run by a guy by the name of Sal Fabrio. And I think it's still there. Um, and my first piano teacher was a guy by the name of Sidney Lewis. I had a first, my first vocal teacher was a Jewish cantor. My first serious piano teacher was a Jewish guy that used to play with Sammy Kahn and work with Sammy Kahn. So 
my parents were thrilled because it was like you know I'm I'm learning all of this stuff and I took to piano like like any other six year old kid would do, um, but I hated practicing. I mean I, I detested it. I wanted to take lessons, yeah, but I just you know I didn't want to practice. I was six years old. I mean I I wasn't you know God rest his soul. I wasn't Keith Emerson who was playing List at the age of fr- uh, three. You know right. So. That's kind of how it all inspired. Then, you know, my father would buy, you know, a drum kit and it was kept down in the basement. And I think it was more along the lines of how um, just to fiddle around with. Um, I took violin lessons. And, you know, I remember for about six months to nine months when I was like seven or eight, um, I took guitar lessons. And thank God it was on a nylon string guitar because I don't think I would have lasted six weeks on a steel string acoustic guitar. You know, he picked up these instruments at, you know, garage sales in the neighborhood. And um, so he had, as I started evolving and I told them I wanted to be a singer, I'd seen Frank Sinatra on the Johnny Carson show when I was six years old. And I pointed to the television. I said, that's who I wanted to be when I grew up. When that's when it all started. The voice lessons, the piano lessons, the rehearsals. My brother was my roadie. He carried the speakers to all these little gigs that my father and my piano teacher would do piano accompaniments to all these Anthony Newley, Sammy Davis, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett songs, and and I would sing to piano tracks. So there was a very, very, if you think about it, I mean, it was a very, very premature stage of karaoke. Were, were your uh, first concert performances that you remember, were you playing, or was it were there uh, live shows that you saw as a young boy that you still remember so are you talking about me performing or my first no, con- i mean sometimes so my know- first concert was frank sinatra and dean martin no kidding. at the at the westchester premiere theater in tarrytown new york so that was the rat pack right there yeah man. yeah so, so so what do you remember about that particular uh concert okay so and how you, old were you i, I was mean, seven so Holy smokes. Well, I saw Ray Charles about that same age in Detroit at the Fisher Theater, and it blew my mind. I'm sure you know it, it, it's it's kind of like you you never realize. I mean, to me, at this stage, seeing Frank Sinatra when I was seven, almost eight years old, was probably like me having front row tickets or backstage passes to see Genesis. You know, as as to what you know as you as you evolve as a musician. Um, but Sinatra was always my hero, so and still is. Um, so one of the things that I remember, um, in the concert per se is that Sinatra used to sing a song called when I was 17, it was a very good year, right? So there was a part of the song where Dean Martin was off stage and, you know, Frank Sinatra sang, when I was 21. And then all of a sudden you hear Dean, you were a pain in the ass, you know, and th- those were certain things. <laughs> a little stick, you know, a little stick there. going. I mean, I remember the bar coming out, and at the time, disco was still prevalent, or you know, just really evolving. So I think Sinatra took a version of Night and Day and made a disco version of Night and Day because you know you still wanted to be hip. You know what I'm saying? And he was the um, ultimate hipster. And he was the ultimate hipster. I mean, people could turn around and and say what they want. I mean, he wasn't the strongest. Technical wise, a vocalist, but the, his phrasing, the breathing was, you know, just it was just immaculate. amazing, and that that gave him the phrasing that just, you know, he had the ability. What I found amazing and still do about artists like Frank Sinatra, 
he had the ability to take a, a venue like Madison Square Garden that holds 20,000 people and basically shrink it to the size of a living room. So you felt that whether you were third tier up or front row, that he was singing directly to you. And that's what I found amazing, more so than anything else. And I, I guess I was just, for me, I picked that up at a very young age. You know, I mean, because back then when you go see concerts, I mean, I'd see Paul Anka in concert and thing, Tom Jones, and there was no big light shows. There was no spectacle. Right. Which it is was, what is common now. Right. It was just the show. So you had to stand on your own merit. So that's what I find amazing, and that's kind of what I miss a lot of in today's artistry is that there's not a lot of people trying hard enough to stand on their own merit. Um, but yeah, Frank Sinatra was, I mean, and when I did performances, they were to piano tracks. My father, we had sound equipment. He would, as I constantly, I, I guess this is where I inherit my love of buying analog gear is that my father would always go to Sam Ash and we would like find the newest microphone or, you know, I mean, he was, he was a very big, he was a photographer. They were both photographers. He had his own photography studio. He did fine portraiture photography, wedding photography, schools, yearbooks. So in his own way, he was an artist, you know, so I don't think at any one point anybody in my family said, no, you've got to put the music down. You need to become an architect. You need to become a lawyer. Um, You need to, you know, go get your MBA. Nobody in my family ever said that. Nobody. It was an unspoken, uh, perhaps, that it was okay, man, to to explore your your creative life and see where it goes. Right. It was never, okay, you've done this long enough. Playtime is over. Now it's time to grow up and join the real world. It was never like that. I don't ever remember my father. I mean, I had summer jobs as a teenager. I mean, mowing lawns and whatever the case well, may be. those are character builders. Yeah, those are, exactly. You, you know, you develop a work ethic. But Exactly. Well, you sound like you already had the work ethic through your education. I had no music, choice. Musician. Because growing up in an Italian household... Right. You know, and hearing how your father grew up through the Depression and lost his mother at 14 years old. And, you know, I mean, you, you had no choice. It was, you know, there was time for me to be my age when I was allowed to be my age. Right. Yeah, In terms absolutely. of, you know, when it was time for me to go out and play at nine, year old, nine years old or 10 years old. But it was also a difficult time for me because while my friends on the street, we're listening to Kiss and Aerosmith and Ario Speedwagon, and that was the thing for they, them to listen to. You can only imagine what it's tough like to be seven, eight, nine, ten years old and constantly be ridiculed because I wasn't into that. I was listening to Sinatra. Wow. I was listening to Tommy Dorsey. I was listening to Tony Bennett. I was listening to Bobby Darren. And I you was loved listening that to music. And I loved Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington. And I, that's, you know, but to try to share that with nine or 10 year olds or 11 year olds that were into like, did you get the new Kiss album? And they and, wanted you to sing like that. Right. And, and they didn't them. understand what I was about. So I think in a lot of aspects, it, it just alienated me. So I grew up <laughs> kind of lonely. Oh, wow. You, you know? In that regard, did did getting you picked on and well, you, you you know that what I notice in a lot of artists, musicians especially, because practicing is a solitary uh, process. Right, you're in the you're in the piano room 
or you're uh, you're sitting with your your vocal coach and you're you're learning the the exercises right. so that you can do them on your own and Correct. not screw your voice up. Right. So you're doing that for years to develop your your instrument, which is you. It's not a piano player. It's not a guitarist. You know, you are your instrument. Correct. And clearly, you went through that that whole early years. It sounds like. Loving the Tommy Dorsey, loving the Frank Sinatra, listening to Duke Ellington, and all of that great music, all the women great performers. Sure. And then your brother brings home Genesis. Yeah, I how think... did how did that blow your mind? Was it the was it the instrumental music? Because I'm sure once you heard Abacab and you say, "Well, I got to find this," it was no reply at all, actually, because it was the use of the horns. Uh, no reply at all. And that's a very different type of horn arranging, too, Correct. You know, compared to American music. Correct. And compared, I mean, hearing that, you know, no reply at all, and then going back and listening to Blood, Sweat, and Tears, or listening to even Chicago, or listening to the Glenn Miller Band, you know? I mean, it was a completely different mindset. And, you know, Quincy Jones, I think, said it best because at, at that time there was becoming World War III in my household because my brother was being looked upon as some sort of evil monster. And he wasn't trying to be anything like that at all. He was he just was a guy just, from New York. He was like, hey, this is a great album. I just saw this, you know, I just saw this band in concert in Syracuse and Phil Collins held the trumpet the whole time. He didn't play it, but he held it, you know. Um, and, you know, it just, and, and my brother was a DJ. On his college radio station. Um, so he was always into... Where did he go to college? He went to Paul Smith's College. And okay. My, he, um, which is about 48, 50 miles. It's a place in Saranac Lake, New York, which is um, just north of Lake Placid. So, which was really cool because he got to be at the 1980 Winter Olympic Games. Oh, so, that's right. You know, yeah. so... Because he graduated high school 79 and then he went off to college. You know, so um, it was, you know... He was always into broadcasting, wanted to be an engineer in terms of audio engineering. I mean, he had a natural knack for it. He really did. Um, you know, and it's a shame that he didn't pursue that. Um, but, you know, he's a a very, very successful hotel executive. He's been in the hotel industry for, for many, many years. And, um, you know, he, he does he does well. So, But your brother was causing World War Three. Yeah. Because um, of bringing in yeah, Genesis? Yeah, because my parents, are, my parents are looking into him as if to say, what are you doing? We have we have Paul under control. You know, it's, you know, we have him under our mind. <laughs> we have him on the you know, fast our mind track spell, to you know? Carnegie exactly. Hall. Exactly. And it's like all of a sudden <laughs> out went serious music, and I put that in quotes, and in came, you know, rock and progressive rock. And then I remember that the next album <laughs> that he had gotten me, which is my favorite Genesis album to this day, it's actually in my CD player in my car, is Trick of the Tail. You know, of the Phil Collins era Genesis, I would have to say Trick of the Tail is my favorite Genesis album. I mean, I, I can go into my favorite Peter Gabriel era too, but uh, but that's how it all happened. And it just really, Gone, you know, people look, you know, people think, okay, so Gone was Frank Sinatra. No, Gone wasn't Frank Sinatra. It was just adding to I, the, right. to the, to the, uh, I just jettisoned down a different musicians. avenue. Yeah. You know, I mean, people think, okay, what's the bands that I've seen more in concert than anything else? Earth, Wind, and Fire, I've seen 16 times in concert. I've seen Genesis in concert 14 times. You know, well, you did live in New York. They came there a lot. Yeah, but even when I, but I also did travel. So I also lived in Philadelphia. I also lived, you know, in Florida. I also lived in California. You know, I mean, so 
Well, I didn't really live in California. I was there for three months opening a hotel, and we'll talk about that a little down the, the track. But um, yeah, so I mean, I I I I did. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jersey, and you know, I mean, yeah, I I just for me it was. I wasn't blown away. I was just amazed. So how I learned to play drums was because of Genesis. We had a two two track Ampex reel to reel that my father had, which weighed a ton. I mean, it was just absolute. I mean, it almost like felt like you needed two people to carry it, and it was shaped like a briefcase. And I was able to actually split the drums on one side through an accident of me just fiddling with wires. Right, you were hacking it, and then you discovered that feature. I I just discovered the feature. So basically, what I did was I started playing drums to Abacab, you know, and that's how I started teaching myself to have a better sense of time. Piano wasn't really giving me the sense of time, the sense of pocket, the sense of groove that it gives me now. Because it wasn't until later on in my teens that I realized how important working with a metronome or a click track is. And I try to, I don't want to use the word beat that into my students' mindset, but for lack of, better, for lack of a better term, it's, I try to stress the importance of no matter how great of a musician you aspire to be, nobody wants to play with you if you can't play in time. Right. You have to establish that internal clock. Right. Exactly. You know, and so that's what drums gave me, not technique. I was by no stretch of the imagination going to start booking myself out as a drummer when I was 16, 17, 18 years old playing in wedding bands. No, the the forte would have been vocals first and then keyboards. And then drums were always kind of tertiary because, you know, I mean, I my parents looked at playing drums were fun, not something that you needed to study. But voice and piano, you needed to study. And my father had hindsight, and this is going back 75, 76, 77, that if you're going to take voice lessons, you need to take an instrument as well because it's just going to help you sing better. And, you know, one it's of my true. Fr- yeah, one of my friends uh, recently said that um, her formative years uh, performing on woodwinds with posture and, and uh, good embouchure and, and breathing and phrasing – served her well when she became a professional singer. She already knew how to do certain parts of her instrument. Absolutely. Even though you you weren't you weren't blowing into a a horn. Right, exactly. So do you think that there was something in your vocal training that was formative because it allowed you to have a sense of the the uh, a musical phrase as opposed to like me as a piano player, you know, it was all about the vertical relationships and and chords and and knowing how to do that and and Coming for me, it was like being able to, at a later age, realize that oh, I got to pay attention to singers all the time, right? Because that gives me a sense of phrasing, and that's what people are listening for. People don't remember oh, cool, cool, uh, uh, altered chord there. They remember the beauty of a phrase and the vocal delivery. Correct. That's what's memorable. But you know, it's also the altered chord under that melody or under that singing phrase. That helps that vocal phrase. I mean, I think the two are very much hand in hand. Um, so, you know, for me, learning phrasing, I don't think it was intuitive. I just studied everything that Sinatra did. I studied everything that Ella Fitzgerald did. I studied everything that Tony Bennett did. And you Mel internalized that. And I internalize it because right. you, you, you listen. You know, Phil Ramone, the, the great producer, God rest his soul, Phil Ramone, was, you know, said to, 
to Keyboard Magazine one time, the most important thing that an artist or an aspiring artist needs to do more than anything else is listen. And, you know, that's, I think that still holds very, very true. I mean, mm-hmm. when I want to work on something, before I even try to really work on it, I just get it in the emotion of the song, the passion of the song, the dynamics of a song, whether it's a piano piece by Beethoven or it's by Lionel Richie. I want to get the dynamics, the artistry of what, how the composition flows. Right, right. You know, th- that brings up another point, and we're kind of segueing, segueing, I guess, a little bit in my mind to some of your, uh, some more of your educational experiences. Can you think of a, of an aha moment in some of these uh, lessons that you had in Carnegie Hall um, that you remember that that really stick with you now? A certain lesson where you really understood something that that uh, sticks with you? Yeah. Um... You know, as as an opera student and somebody who teaches opera or classical music or bel canto method, as you pointed out, um, there's a term called, you know, we have the term passaggio, which... The passageway. Or the passageway. So everything I do is in Italian, so thank God for you to translate. But the, <laughs> the passaggio for a male voice or even a female voice in a lot of aspects is between located between D4 and G4 on, on an instrument. Um when you're writing in the treble clef, obviously the male voice is pitched an octave lower. But we use a term called cover, which is soft palatal influence to avoid blatancy. And that was my aha moment when I was able to actually shape the vowel and use less of the throat um, and not have an E vowel come out so blatant. Um, Wasn't harsh. Yeah. So it, it, shrill, where... It had more of a rounder tone to it, you know. You know, I tried to when I vocalized to even make sure that I, I kind of envision that I'm looking out at a sunset, and there's just kind of in the old west, and you could just see where the sun meets the ground, and you know, you just you see that straight line. And so every time I'm vocalizing, I try to make sure that every vowel that I'm working with has that same vocal and vowel plateau. Um, and that's that was the aha moment for me. So learning how to sing an ooh vowel, you know, and learning how to sing an ah vowel, um, that I still to this day go back and say, uh, I could fix that. I could do that better. Um, so because you're conscious of those, uh, uh, the way in which you uh, cover the mm-hmm. uh, the those vowel. Uh, sounds, whether it's the hard or the soft vowel, because we sing them differently than the way we speak them. Correct. I mean, everything with English is, you know, with the teeth. Thank you. Whereas I teach more of a European diction because it's a softer diction to work with, Um, you know, and just not be so blatant, you know, teaching, learning how to blend the voice. Tell me again, who was the teacher that was there at the aha moment? The, Martin Lease. Okay, Martin, right. Martin Lease, yeah. Um, and was was he um, uh, a faculty member at Juilliard? No, not at all. He was a private teacher. He was recommended to me from Edmund Carlsrude, okay. who was a barit- bass baritone um, at the Metropolitan. And then, you know, I met John Darrenkamp, who was a baritone with the Metropolitan. So it was great. I, I you know, I spent countless countless hours and days 
at Lincoln Center. It was great. Had season tickets to the opera. I saw Carlos Carlo Bergonzi's last performance. Um, you know, at that time he was close to eighty. You know, so you know, as I was always influenced by tenors when when the vocal when the voice changed. Um, and then you go and every once in a while, you know, I had an opportunity to study with Franco Corelli. And, but the problem is, is you have these great tenors that can't translate what they do to a student in a lesson. Right. Cause they might say, well, just do it. Right. Exactly. And I've, I've experienced that with producers in the rock world as well. Is that, you know, you're a singer, just sing it. And I'm like, yeah, but what are you looking for? Because, you know, as artists, we always want to second guess ourselves. Right. Because we are our worst critics. So I don't, I'm not, I'm never really pleased with anything that I've ever done musically. Well, as I've told my friends a lot, is that songs just escape. Right. Otherwise, yeah. you'll never get out of the, you'll never get, you'll run another take. So, you know, we can, well, I want to go into the, into the world of your, of your recording life, but. But one more question about um, the vocal uh, studies that you did. Were were there like a list of five or six different studies that you use all the time that were that were presented to you that at mm-hmm. that moment? Yes, and you just use them all the time. And do you do you find that there's an appropriate time in your students' uh, uh, learning arc, if you will? that you start putting that into their uh, regular routine? And do you allow them to do it on their own? Or are you there to listen so that they don't do it in an incorrect way, which develops bad habits? That's a very, very um, good question. And it's kind of a two-part answer. Um, The exercises that I've learned from a child and the exercises that I've learned as an adult, um, I still readily do. And they're still very much archived and easily brought out when I'm working a specific technique, depending upon the genre of music that I'm doing. So yes, they've I, I haven't jettisoned down several different avenues to try to find different technique. I do try to reinvent the technique when it's applicable to something that's not classical music. In other words, I try to take a classical technique and try to figure out how do I make this applicable in modern music, okay, where it doesn't come across like I'm trying to train everybody to be an opera singer. As far as the second part of the question is how do I implement that or how do I educate my students with that, I start them off on very, very simple exercises, the same ones that I do. And I think it's important, and this is where I'm going to go off for like 30 seconds. I think it's important that as a teacher, you want to be able to teach, but yet as also as me being an artist, whether it be a live performance artist or a recording artist, I want to be able to show the students that I still do this to be able to get ready for a performance, to get ready for a recording session. So I'm not just teaching you exercises. When I usually have my students, my vocal students bring a digital voice recorder that I'm able to record their lessons and I'm able to record their exercises. And I give them songs to sing on an internet website that they have a link to where I can see them through their camera 
being able to show me how they're breathing, how they're phrasing the whole nine yards. So I'm never not accessible to them, even though they may be studying with me for only an hour a week. I'm still accessible to them if they have a question. Um, And the second part, I'm not a big fan of choirs. And let me let me explain to you why. And it's not that I don't love choral music and I don't love being part of an organization. It's not a good environment to teach an individual singer. Correct. Because if you're in the middle and Bob is to the left of you and Frank is to the right of you and you're taking private voice lessons, but Bob and Frank aren't, you're now picking up their bad habits. Because if they have an untrained voice, if they have an untrained breath technique, you're picking up the bad habits. So that's why I'm not a huge fan of choirs. I know a lot of parents come to me and they're like, well, my daughter's in this choir, my son's in that choir, and he's got jazz choir ensemble. And the, and it's, it's you know, I try to explain to them the importance of individual study. Right. So Exactly. Yeah, I know that a lot of my students in my school, it's all about starting to sing from the very beginning, right. even though they're getting piano or, as you say, they're going to be in a choir in sixth grade. I know that if I can just remember what I learned about Van Cliburn, that he would sing his lines, then I need to be doing that because that's about as the best of an example of making people aware of the lyricism and, and the and the, the the ability to know what a phrase is and how it starts and how it ends. And I did the opposite. I didn't sing the line. I remember um, attending a, a class with Mel Torme, and when he learns a piece of music and he gets a lyric sheet, the first thing he thinks of is how can he say these words in conversation? Forget the melody. Forget the music end of it. How can you say these words in conversation? Because that's where the story comes out. To me, that was what really helped my phrasing. Because you would speak it, as you say, Correct. in spoken word. Right. And then if you can do that, then you can you can understand the rhythmic component of it. Correct. And just simply the way you speak it, then you modify it for the singing voice. Correct. Oh, How wow. to breathe, really where cool. to breathe. So I look at it, you know, I mean, you could take any song lyric, I mean, for as as silly as it may be, you know, and, and turn it into, you know, a conversation, you know. Um, and that's that's one of the things that I, I teach my students. I also teach my students to, when we're working on a karaoke track, I tell them, okay, I just want you to sing the vowel. Oh, wow. So you'd isolate it. So, yeah. So, you know, instead of singing, you are the love of my life. I would actually go, ooh, ah, 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 and get them to, because it's the consonants that suck out all the air. They're the bastards in it, you know? It's, it's you know, so, I mean, because vowels don't take any air to sing. So you, you could sing a whole song on a good tank full of air, and you could sing 24 measures, 48 measures. You was know. that a Torme insight? No, that was me. I kind of, I kind of. designed something that, I did, you know, once epiphany, again. Epiphany, if yeah, you will. Yeah, it was. It was an aha moment as an adult. Wow. So that's a brilliant idea. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that one, man. That's really good. <laughs> Go right ahead. Get get your students to sing vowels. I mean, in a, you know, and I tell my students all the time, whether it's here in the studio or, or I'm at their homes, 
this is the form to make mistakes because as teachers, as educators yeah. that happen to be artists as well. It's okay. Make mistakes. Right. Man. Make we them can't, all. We can't fix what we don't know is broken. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think we as artists that happen to teach as opposed to teachers that happen to be artists, and there's a big difference, you know, um, it's our job to work a music lesson like we're doing a recording session as a producer. We want to bring the best out of our student. So I, I treat every vocal lesson like we're in a recording studio, you know, and we're just prepping while the engineer is getting the, the two-inch tape ready. You know what I'm saying? And we're just working outside in the little lobby area of the, of the studio and just getting everything ready. So this way there's no stress. I want to eliminate stress across the board. Bad enough that the teacher has it. I don't want my student to have it. <laughs> Just like you Sun is shining Skies are blue The night you held me In your warm embrace The smile you gave me From your golden face The thoughts and dreams We had said and shared Well I never knew Just how much I cared
That's a fascinating uh, approach to 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 have it as a producer artist relationship. And when did that really start to happen? Was it because you had created? And, and we can kind of talk about your recording life a little bit. The records that that brought my attention to you and. In, in your work as a performing artist, your roster of players that are <laughs> a part of your, your your recording life is nothing short of astounding. Thank you. And so, when that started to happen, when you were when you were working with these incredible musicians that are a part of these uh, world class uh, touring groups and recording uh, sessions, did. Did they have an impact in this way? Where you kind of thought oh, yeah. differently about how you taught? You know, tell me a little bit about that that journey. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I know you're getting ready to have Roughly Organic coming out, mm-hmm. um, and uh, tell me when that's coming out before we go down this road. Uh, well, if all goes well, I mean, obviously, we've had some sidetracking issues the gentleman that does all my life is what it is well the gentleman and my dear friend who is a brilliant musician in and of himself uh and just has amazing music that he writes and composes um leon alvarado who has been my dear friend and graphic designer he has just lost everything in houston in the tragedy with Harvey. So this is this this is just ha- you know I mean all of these all right. Of these this things. is happening this week. And, yes. and still ongoing, and Correct. we're all having friends that are just, going through it's that. It's just absolutely. Um, it's one awful. of my engineers that was working in this studio moved back down to Houston, and he's going through it, and um, it's 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 a terrible, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy in so my heart. So things are clearly we're we're you know music is now not even part of the conversation. It's 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 it is, but I mean it's not. On the frontal lobe of the brain. I mean, yeah. how I started working with all of these great musicians, I, I knew that they were heroes of mine, and I was blessed that all of them never turned me down when I approached them. And all of them, for as iconic performers and musicians that they are, 
none of them had iconic egos. So they were all very approachable and they would all, you know, we would sit at dinner after the session and I would just hear stories and it was just, you know, tragedy, you know, drama of like working with an artist that they worked with that didn't have their shit together, you know, and the frustrations in the studio because, you know, um, so, you know, as you start to work with these people more and more, you realize that, you know, I really got to bring my A game. I really have to bring my A game. But so, they also make it possible for you to do that. Absolutely. Be- because they are such wonderful humans. Absolutely. First and foremost, I mean, yes, I, I'm I'm heroes of their work. But more importantly now at this stage, because when I see them at NAM or the occasional email or phone call or Skype, you know, I'm I'm heroes of them more and more as human beings. And that's to me, that's important because I've worked with stellar musicians that were assholes. Sure. We, we all have. And you know, and they don't even realize they're doing it. Oh, some of them I think they do realize that they're doing it, but well, you know. I guess that's true. But you know, the thing that that, that I was uh, uh, considering last night, and when I was going to ask some questions about the recording life of yours, go ahead. Is is when you were when you were thinking about creating that first album, and you're getting some of the musicians that were a part of those recordings whether they were on the the studio recording or they were bringing it live to the world. Um, You know, tell me about what you were uh, thinking about when you were contemplating doing your first record and it wasn't going to be Italian opera. You weren't doing arias, but you were going to do a, uh, a rock thing that pays tribute, not only to the groups uh, that you grew up with, uh, clearly, like you, you said, you you love um, the Genesis album Foxtrot uh, and uh, Trick of the Tail. Sorry, Trick of the Tail. I, I do love and Foxtrot. Foxtrot, too. that's awesome. <laughs> Even a little bit earlier, but I'm a big Genesis nut too. But the the thing about uh, doing the, uh, a, a track off of that album, uh, and that's a great arrangement of a Tangle, by the way. That's just Thank stunning, you. stunning uh, re reimagining of that record but anyway i'm getting off the track here do you did you find it difficult to get all those people together or like you say it was just they they believed in your project and they just said well tell me when i need to be there okay so i was a huge fan of brad cole and people are like brad cole um well brad was with you know i mean he's just been well, Chaka Khan, yeah. Phil Collins, Paula Abdul, you know, you know all these no names. Gino Vanelli, you know, I mean, he was, he, I mean, he basically wrote the introduction to Living Inside Myself, and he was on that whole Night Stalker album with Vinnie Caliuta and Neil Steubenhaus, which also, subsequently, I've had the pleasure, I just did a session with Vinnie out in L.A. He's featured on Rawfully Organic, and Neil Steubenhaus was the bass player on my second album. Um so I had contacted Brad, and I really wanted to do an album as opposed to just a track or two, and I wanted him to produce it. And it, you know, it was really hard finding him, even on the internet. I mean, it was just really difficult to locate Brad Cole. And I thought, wow, either this guy doesn't want to be found, or just nobody knows how to get in touch with him. So I eventually was able to get in touch with him. I found his website, and I I got in touch with him. And I called him, and I waited for about two or three weeks. And I was like, oh, this sucks. I was like, okay, well, you know, that shot that idea. And then he called me three weeks later. 
I actually thought it was like a bill collector. And um, we wound up talking for about three, four hours on the phone, starting what was going to wind up being, you know, this whole project that involved into not only an album, but a DVD on the making of the album. And he had asked me, he goes, well, do you have a band? And I said, no, I don't really have a band. I, I can call upon musicians. He's like, well, you know, the most important thing, obviously, is that we want to lay down rhythm tracks as, you know. Right. You wanted as live right. as possible. So, um, which I'm a huge fan of now. I mean, it's, I, I mean. It's the it's, only way to do it, man. It's, I, 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 you know, people study trumpet or cello for a reason. And to, to replace a trumpeter or a cellist with a sample, to me, is just an insult. Now, if there's budgetary issues, that's fine. I understand that. But, you know, I mean, these people have a right to work. There's a reason why they studied. But anyway, you know, Brad's like, oh, well, don't worry. If you need a drummer, we'll just get Chester to do it. So Chester And I'm like, Thompson. Chester as in Chester Thompson, right? And I was like, I'm like, yeah, okay. I mean, like, you know, I'm like trying to stick a fork in me to see, like, am I actually really hearing, hearing this? Right, right. You know, and, you know, sure as shit, man. I mean, you know, Chester was on. And this was what year? 2009, 2008, 2009, I started the album. It took me two years to do. Right, right. Um, because we recorded it in Nashville and also- And some... Chester lives in Nashville. Or at least he, yes. he teaches there. And he lives in Nashville, too. He lives about eight minutes away from Brad's home studio. And um, so, you know, <laughs> so here I am, you know, I'm on like the second or third session after we had gotten started and, you know, um, and walks Chester. show you aerial views of the ground Freudian slumber empty of sound
2007 so um you know and i've seen you many times with phil so it's kind of so you're quite the fanboy i yeah and here's the thing that that went away after like my, my second session with brad because brad picked me up from the airport 
Brad would take me to the hotel where I was staying. We would meet for breakfast at the Shoney's, which is no longer there because Nashville got devastated by its own flooding. You know, and all its own that. flooding. You know, in two thousand ten. I remember that. Um, you know, and we would meet for breakfast and we would talk, and you know, it was it was great. I mean, you know, when I first got picked up from the airport and he was there, you know, he's wearing his Phil Collins sweatshirt. Um, there's a little bit like I'm in the car with Brad Cole. You know, I just. Saw you in 2005 at the American Airlines <laughs> with Phil. You know, it's kind of like... Yeah, I was at that show, too. So, yeah. Fantastic. So, it was a great show. Great show. Um, so, yeah, that kind of went away rather quickly because I was the executive producer. So, the bottom line is, at the end of the day, I'm paying for this. Right. So Well, it, I mean, and you, know, and, and you, you realize that you're bringing a, the same level of competency to the sessions as these guys. I had no choice. Well, you know. man, don't sell yourself short. No, but I, I really, I mean, because it was my first project where, you know, looking, you know, singing into a microphone is like basically taking your clothes off because that microphone is picking up absolutely everything, you know? So you're not aware. And I, I've also big, become a big proponent of, there's no way around it here unless I put the monitors out of phase, but I hate wearing headphones when I'm tracking vocals. Because you want hate it. you want to hear the reflections in the room and yeah, I mean you know you get one sound through cans and then you take them off and you realize that you you were tremendously out of tune, you know, um, and then all of a sudden you sing it without the cans and you're like spot on. So you're monitoring uh, maybe I've seen certain artists do this where that where they blow the monitors at them without cans, right? And it's so you'll get a little bit of bleed, but it seems like there's a there's a, there's an energy that's there. Uh, maybe with the, with your vocal performance because you're hearing it a little, a little bit more naturally, correct? As opposed to like it's the ultimate near field monitors, here. correct? Being isolated. Um, I, I've gotten better with it now. I take one ear off. Um, but you know, I mean, I'd much rather take an SM57 and run through a great preamp, and and just you know have a reflector. So Brad, did, did he? Uh, no, uh, I had uh, to wear headphones. <laughs> well, because I was he in a had, different room, right? Um, so Chester comes in. Uh, what was one of the other uh, 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 at the beginning of the recording of the album that that walked in there and, and really just made you think, holy crap, Daryl Sturmer? Yeah, holy smokes, man! You know, Daryl Sturmer. Um, and Daryl was sweet. I mean, Daryl's a sweet man. I mean, I and his brother. I mean, I had two bassists on the album. One was Leland Sklar, and one was Daryl's brother, uh, Dwayne Sturmer. And uh, Dwayne was amazing, and we roomed together, and. Uh, it was a lot of fun working with Dwayne. In fact, when I did live shows, Dwayne was the bassist. So, um, you know, I mean, Daryl was one meeting Leland for the first time. You know, you, you get over it very quickly um, because you've got to be part of, like, you know, what you want and what you don't want. I, you know, I, I would have to tell Leland, like, I didn't have to tell him. I said, you know, don't be afraid to. And he's like, I know, play the bass, right? <laughs> and he kind of knew what I wanted to say because he knew it was a little awkward for me. But, you know, he, he gave me what I wanted. And, and everybody was amazing. Everybody, when the, tra- when, the, when the track or the take was over, it was always looking back and, like, looking to see if I liked it or didn't like it. You know, there were a couple of things that I would say, can we do this part again? Can I have these eight bars redone again in Chester? Can you give me some, you know, some doubles on the hi-hat, you know, um, that type of thing. So, you know, I mean, they were very, very accommodating. I never told anybody how to play, and I never told anybody what to play, um, which, according to Brad, was well within my 
realm of doing so. Well, as, it's your role you know, as a producer. As, as, as you know, but um, I didn't have any worries about what they were bringing to the table. And it sounds like to me that because you had those early years playing piano, playing drums, uh, you were able to communicate ideas because at least you knew how to hold the sticks and you could tell them, oh, I want you to play 16th notes here on the hi-hat Correct. as opposed to playing something on the ride. And you actually knew what you were talking about. Correct. And so I think that as a producer, that's probably key because uh, a couple of the guys that I know that are, are part of that old school of producing where they could play anything, they could they – could, get out from behind the mixing console and step into the room and show the drummer what they wanted. And then the drummer would say, okay, I got it. Right. Right. And so it sounds like you were able to communicate it, that. It really was, well. yeah. I mean, it wasn't that extreme with Chester. It was just, you know, and there were actually certain, well, things. you're not pushing Chester out of the chair. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Sweetheart of a man that he is. He really is just a great guy. Well, you know, the, the thing is, is that, you know, when you were doing uh, the record, tell me something, um, and you had Brad at the helm. The there was how many tracks on the record? I'm trying to remember. Ten. There was ten tracks. That's what I've been hearing. And what track stands out to you as your favorite? Do you have a favorite? This is like killing your Ooh, children a little bit. I know because um, some because it was. Well, I only wrote three on there. Right, only three of them but, are mine. Well, yeah, I, and I clearly got that. But was there? Well, out of the three of the originals, which one did you think that they really nailed it? And you nailed it. Okay, so I say this in the DVD documentary that f- something to tell, which is goes with the album that none of the songs that I had written originally that ended up on the album were arranged originally how I had written them. So we literally kind of took the arrangements of these songs and completely redid them. So like Woman Like You was a ballad. And now, you know, I had 27 sax or 22 sax tracks on it with Gerald Albright and Alan Burton for here from Dallas. And I had live steel drums on it um, to give it a very Jimmy Buffett type of feel. So that became my kind of Calypso and Brad played synth bass, keyboard bass, which he did an amazing job on the production and the arrangement in the song. Um, so I think that tends to be one of my, Favorite tracks, and then also the title track, Tell Me Something, because that was a song originally entitled Heart and Soul that my best friend Chris Remediani from New York, who's a great songwriter, great singer, great guitarist, great musician, and once again, just a great person, he had written that song back in like 85, 86, um, and it was a dance track. And so we took it, Chris and I took it, and Brad came in and we turned it into I kind of rewrote the song really and made it into this Steely Dan funk and then I put a bridge in there I wanted a bridge in there because I had Alan Burton from Dallas who is just this amazing woodwind player um I loved working with Alan put it you know put his style of sax on there and Luis Conte did a percussion solo you know we did a little bit of a breakdown on it so it was it was kind of cool so you know we changed the title I changed some of the lyrics Wrote the Brit, you know, so um, that was, I was a very proud moment. Where you that. transformed these songs from what your original vision was, and you were open enough and not, you know, constricted enough that you're saying, oh, this is, this is the opportunity of the lifetime to fully flesh this out. Correct. In an unknown direction, but it made the, the song 
really come alive. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, you deal with this. I deal with this. I deal with artists all the time that are like, no, it has to be this way. And I'm like, yeah, but it would be really better if you went down this road. Or at least try it, man. Right, exactly. Because it's up to you to decide ultimately. Correct. But you shouldn't. You shouldn't limit yourself to only that original uh, vision for anything, whether it's a DVD. Now, if I remember right, it was Eric Klein that did the the documentary? Yes, Eric Klein, who's one of my dearest friends as well. Um, We just spoke not too long ago. Um, He did the documentary, Something to Tell. And I originally released Tell Me Something as a two-disc set, one with the CD and one with um, the DVD, Something to Tell. And then I have, of course, I have... Uh, a few boxes left of that, just the actual DVD, which I apologize for not bringing. I should have actually. Oh, it's all right, man. I know where you oh, live. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you know the the thing that um, that was fascinating as I was uh, exploring a little bit more about your uh, your recording life um, is that you did this uh, autism project, and yeah. um, I promised uh, one of my best friends in the world that I would ask about this because okay. she has uh, 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 a young. Uh, son that's on the spectrum okay and uh why did you do that project is there a personal story here yes yes um i am not a music therapist i don't claim to be one and i certainly don't play one on I television think we're all music music therapists in one degree or another right but there's some people that have degrees correct that, right so that that's what i meant at by the that. cleveland clinic and places like right that. exactly and it's kind of an oxymoron to have somebody like myself, an Italian New Yorker, to have patience. And I normally don't um, because, you know, you have your different time zones and then you have my time zone and, you know. But I was called to work with somebody whose child had autism. And I had never really worked with anybody with autism or any type of really severe special needs at all. And it just got to the point where when I started working with this child, it was just an amazing How old feeling. was this uh, student? Um, at the time, I want to say six or seven. Oh, wow. Very young then. Very young. Um, Zach Laviola was is the child's name. They, I've, they've recently moved from Dallas to Austin. But an amazing family... And I was working with Zach's older brother, Jake, and Zach's eldest sister, Rachel. They were both my voice and piano students. So it just, I kind of inherited Zach as to see he always had a love for music. Well, what I found out over the years of working with either children or adults on the spectrum is that they have tremendous amount of talent. Not only that, they have perfect pitch. I mean, Mike, when I tell you perfect pitch, I could put a child in a room that knows his notes, okay, facing away from the piano, and I can play an E-flat major 7 chord on the first or second octave of the piano and an F minor 9, three octaves up, And when I play them all together at once, from the bottom to the top, he can tell me what note I'm playing. I mean, just yeah, that's that's mind equals blown. It's because different parts of their brain are processing it differently than what we do. I've never met 
a student that I've had the privilege, and it is a privilege because I always feel that I will learn more from my students with autism than they will ever learn from me. It's really a joy. It's really a delight. Um, and I don't really know how this kind of transpired, but one of my good friends who became even like a brother to me is Lee Carreri. And if you've ever seen the original movie Fame or the television yes. series, Lee Carreri yes. played Bruno Martelli on the original movie Fame and on the television series. Well, we, you know... And he plays everything. I mean, piano, horns, flugelhorn, yeah, trombone. Just, so he's everything more than what you saw in the film. Yes. I mean, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we kind of... He grew up in Yonkers, New York. I grew up in Harrison, Mamaroneck, New York. He's... Eight, eight so you years. had so, the, how you doing? Yeah, kind of exactly. Thing. There was that camaraderie. <laughs> you know, he has a dog, you know, Herbie, that he loves. And I had made a comment. And that's kind of how this all started. It was social media can be a great thing, uh, you know, to bring people closer together, especially when the common denominator is something as beautiful and as loving as music. Sure. And absolutely. Um, so that's how I got started. I contacted Lee and he had... These four songs, songs from fame, and of course I remembered them from the TV series. And I thought, you know, I was listening to a song called that he had done called Could We Be Magic Like You that he had written f for an episode of fame. And I thought, this would be a great autism anthem. And, you know, he went back and I called him and we, you know, we, we, we talk a lot. Um, I probably talk to Lee more than I talk to anybody. Um and he listened to it, and he's like, okay, yeah. He goes, "You want? what do you want to do? So, I mean, I picked his four songs that he had done for the show, and I said, I want to rearrange them and, and, and do them. And so we took a 3-4 song, and we made it into 6-8, and kind of I wanted that what the world needs now is love, sweet love type of vibe. And if you ever listen to the version of it, it, it kind of has that feel. And it was also the first time I'd actually ever played on one of my projects. Uh, I did the drums. Um, which I didn't anticipate doing because I was going to hire somebody. And Lee's like, I've seen you screw around in the studio. Why don't you just do it? You know? So um, I did the drums and Neil Steubenhaus did the bass. Um, Chris Remediani, I flew him in from New York. He did the guitars. Lee did the horns as well as the keyboards uh, and the piano. And Nichelle Monroe and Blanca Gomez. Blanca was one of my former vocal students in Las Colinas. And she moved out to L.A. to pursue her career in acting. And she's a brilliant actress and brilliant singer. So I had her come in and kind of ghost the voice on Could We Be Magic. And then I had, I've developed an amazing friendship with Nichelle Monroe, who is just this amazing, amazing vocalist. Came in and do background vocals. And Alicia DeMeza did harp. So once again, it's like I don't use samples. I always – and Alicia was so touched by the project, she – packed her harp up in the car and drove from Arizona to LA, you know, to play on one song. So, um, you know, it just, and so I, I just made it to the point where I wanted to do this for an organization in Los Angeles called autismunites.org. So anybody that purchases any of my downloads on any of my albums, whether it be tell me something or what we call songs for social awareness, I donate 25% to autismunites.org because I just, 
it's so much fun working with these children and the adults that are on the spectrum. It's terrible that they're on the spectrum, but um, it, it's it's just a life changing. It's it's an amazing experience. It's a, to them to me. They're my gold and platinum records. Working working with them, that's that's my Grammy award. You know, I mean, I, I may never get an acc- an accolade or an award for anything I've ever done musically, but you know what? I don't need it. I have them.
I guess, you know, as we kind of wrap up today, you know, we're here recording at your studio, Cozy Ark. And I know you have a love for animals. We were talking about that at the beginning of the podcast, um, that you have a uh, an extraordinary zoo at your home. <laughs> and yes. uh, so who's uh, residing at uh, Paul's uh, Zoo these days? Two ducks, Cuff and Link. Um, I had two lambs and two German shepherds, one of which... Uh, both of two Lambo passed away in June, um, and Adrian passed away. My German Shepherd, Adrian. I'm sorry, man. Thank you. Passed away May sixth. Um, it's been a tough year. It has been a very difficult year. I mean, I'm I'm closer to my animals than I am to probably some of my family members. Um, As one does. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, they're they're with you for so many years, and they become a part of your home. And, um, but there is a new lamb and there is a new German shepherd that is not mine, but I claim him. I have visitation rights. He lives in the house with me, with my roommate who happens to be one of my vocal students. And I'm actually producing his band, December Screams Embers, um, a metal project, which is so out of my realm, um, because it's not a traditional singing metal project. It's more of a screaming metal project um so it's kind of like i'm sitting in here for a session and they're tracking vocals and the the vocalist who happens to also be one of my vocal students he's like what do you think and i'm like well if you're angry you're definitely getting that point across so (laughs) exactly um no but it's they're young they're all you know 21 22 23 years old and um you know they're they're all learning getting it started so when you bring a group into especially when you're just producing or at least tracking uh and and you're serving that role for them and they come to the cozy art um are you finding that this might be some of the people that come in it's the first time they've been in a a world-class studio with uh, all the gear and uh, and the monitors and uh, the great drum set and and you're educating them just how to comport themselves within the studio I think so. I think a lot of them come into a studio and, you know, there's the wow factor. I'm going to be in a recording studio and I'm doing this. Um, And then there's other artists that come in and they kind of know what they want and they know how to, it's not their first rodeo. Right. Um, So I have to, as a, when I, when I play the producer hat, I have to kind of go with the artist as the great producer, Arif Martin, God rest his soul, would say. That, you know, I mean, you try to find, you know, the best preamp and mic to go with a specific vocalist. And, um, you know, it, it's they come in and, you know, for the first day or so, they're very nervous. Um, especially when they put the cans on and there's a click track. And if they've never rehearsed it with a click track, um, there's a lot of timing issues. Um, and I'm I'm not one to do Melodyne or, you know, anything like that. I mean, we, we, we do if it's absolutely necessary, but I'd rather get it done right because I want the performance. So I don't necessarily track, um, as a producer, I don't track from start to finish one song. Um, a lot of times we'll do that and we catch magic in a bottle because we're just checking levels and we have maybe 8, 12, 16 bars of that 
scratch track, so to speak, that will definitively end up on the project. Um, but mostly it's, it's kind of like they come in and it's like they want to take pictures and they're like, what does this do and what's this? And so it's, it's an education, which I think is important to an aspiring artist that you, you need to know what a compressor is. You need to know what an EQ is. You, ne- you need to know what a, a tube preamp is as opposed to a solid state and what you're looking at and what you're looking for. Um, a lot of people, I, I, I worked with an artist who, she was absolutely brilliant. She came in for a few days. She had already known what she wanted, and she picked this studio because it was a recommendation because she wanted that tapestry, Carol King sound. And, you know, I'm I'm a analog player stuck in a digital world. So for me, I created the Cozy Arc because I wanted to make records the way records were meant to be made recorded through analog. Um, yes, I use Pro Tools as a digital platform as my DAW, but everything that's here doesn't go through plugins. It goes through analog gear. Um, and the other reason why I created the ARC was because I wanted people to come in here and and be able to feel that, you know, for all of this gear, you know, including an engineer and to be able to use, you know, the Taylor guitars or the Gretsch, or the Rickenbacker, or the drums, or, you know, I mean, you're singing into, you know, a vintage U87 or a Manly Gold reference mic. I wanted them to feel that, you know what, they can do this and not have to cost, you know, donate a lung or a kidney. And also, I created my own Wrecking Crew. I mean, there's a great documentary out there called The Wrecking Crew. Right, very famous. Um, And that's what I did was I created half a dozen session players from bass, guitar, drums, vocalist, you know, and they come in, keyboard players, if I'm not playing on it, um, to come in and and because we work together so well and so often, we kind of know our ins and outs and idiosyncrasies as players and as, as artists. So I wanted the artist to come in that didn't have a band to know that they could come in relatively inexpensively and come in and get their album up on iTunes. I just wanted to become an enabler of dreams, really. This The studio... Um, has been a dream of mine to be able to turn around and just take aspiring artists and say, you know, when people come in and say, God, you should be getting $80, $90 an hour for this place with your gear. And I'm, I'm doing it for 50, you know, and that's inclusive of an engineer. Um, and my session players don't get paid per the hour. They come in and they get paid 80 bucks a song and they're very happy with that. And they're very brilliant players. And they're, it's one, two and it's done. Right. You know, I usually get three passes on a drum take. You know, um, same thing with a bass, same thing with a guitar. And the reason why I have 12 string or Gretsch or a hollow body or, or Strat or whatever is because sometimes something I hear doesn't fit a Telecaster. You know, it doesn't, you know, I want an acoustic track and I want to pull out the six string or the 12 string or have it doubled in a 12 string. Well, it's good that you have those uh, uh, options. Yes. I've been in some studios where they have racks of gear and they've got the Neve console, but there's not a guitar in sight. There's not a selection of amps. Um, And when I did my last record, I had the luxury of playing a dozen different kinds of guitars if I wanted to. Right. Or I wanted, if I wanted a particular tone, I could go for a particular sound because that amp was right there. 
I could play the Fender. I could play the Vox. I, right. I could pull that off. And that's unusual uh, that I've found in most studios because everything is about the the digital world, as you will. Correct. And we all know it's it's all about how you perform your instrument. It's not the gear that it runs through that's first uh, in and the foremost. Digital, right. digital domain. So that's fantastic that you've had that vision from the beginning. You know, and there's, I mean, my engineer and I will talk about it, and it's it's about ears, not gear. You know, it's about what we're hearing and what's the best approach to song structure and what's the best melody line. You know, you want your vocalists, when they're sitting in the ISO booth with the cans on and they're singing into this microphone, you want them to sing their money shots, you know, their money notes. That's, you know, it's going to be, you know, I, I hate working with somebody who comes in and says a song has to be in this key. Well, that's not really your range. Right, you need to bring you it know, down a couple of steps. Right, exactly, and um, and they find their sweet spot key when you allow them to do that. Correct, and it's you know it's it's a very sensitive environment. We're, right, we're very fun here. There's a lot of laughing, a lot of jokes. Um, we don't take ourselves seriously at all. We definitely take, but there's the, the music production. that you're trying to make right. though, and Absolutely. that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, you have to be laser beam focused and if something needs to change it's all about the song absolutely absolutely i mean i think one of the things that makes the cozy arc or my teaching school special is that i'm not and just tell me teaching the name of your uh, uh, school again the dadamo school.com um and one of the you know i mean we all work in the dfw metroplex to provide a fun informative Educative, if that's a word, um, it's a word because we say it is. But you, but you bring your students here in the studio. I do some of them, yes. Yeah, I when mean, they when do travel, when they're yeah. ready to, to, right. to be a part of that, you know. And I mean, my students also earn free studio time. So, you know, the more you study, the more you put into your the education aspect of it, the learning aspect, the technique, the pedagogy. Um, you know, you you can earn studio time. So when you're writing a song, here's your place to to be able to That's do fantastic, it. Fantastic, man. So, um, you know, we just music's got to be fun. You know, Mike, you and I have been doing this for so many years that if we can't demonstrate to the people that we're educating, that we're teaching, that we're excited, that every we're time excited, we do it. how can we expect them to be excited? It's force a personal example, man. You know, and it's I mean, there's just. You know, the Ark is a boutique studio. You sit in it. The lighting is conducive to your living room. Um, it's it's very no pressure. And um, we're just really blessed, I mean, I think as musicians. And when I say we, I say the DFW community. Because we're bringing a lot of joy to a lot of people. From performance, from recording, from education. I mean, it's it's all ties into one another. So, well, you know, I can't think of a better way to end this podcast, but with what you just said, but there's something that you said, uh, in your documentary, something to tell that I wanted to reference. You said in, in reference to making the record, that's a part of that. You said, I'm living my dream. I did it. I started it. I completed it.
Paul Dadamo. What I really found interesting during our conversation is how much he loves teaching and that he uses a recording studio to enhance his music school. You can find more information about his music academy at the Dadamo School of Performing Arts. The website is thedadamoschool.com. And don't forget to check out his studio website, CozyArc.com. The tracks you heard during today's interview are from Paul's albums and can easily be found via iTunes, CD Baby, Amazon, and at MRRMusic.com. My name is Mike Dawson, and I am the Silent Pianist. You can find everything you want to know about me at my band's website, RoarElectra.com, or at my Twitter, at Mike Dawson Music. And you can find the Silent Pianist podcast anywhere podcasts are found. Goodbye, old friends. I am the Silent Pianist. See you next time.